0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another TreeSeal podcast. My name is James Chu. I look after investment solutions and product development at TreeSeal Investment Advisors. I'm pleased to be joined today with Steve Godlin from Parala. He's a good friend of mine, uh, and I'll let him introduce himself and his company. Hi,
1: everyone. Uh, my name is Stephen Golden. I'm a managing partner of Paralla Capital. And
0: what does Parala
1: do? Parala is uh, an investment advisor to institutional investors. Uh, We also have a very advanced uh, learning investment system based on the academic work of our uh, founding professor partners. And so we do work across uh, fund research, asset allocation, and have recently made our uh, investment technology accessible for some of our clients.
0: Very good, Steve. We knew each other for years. You were looking at indices and factor indices, if I remember, when we first met. Too long, I think it's like twenty-five years. Oh, you're now revealing my age. That's actually embarrassing. So, <laughs> okay, what we're going to do today in this probably a few podcasts there is talk about something that is fundamental in our will in a modern investment. This year, we also the one of the founders of Modern Portfolio Theory, Harry Markowitz, he won the Nobel Prize. Uh, He passed away earlier this year. Uh, We were different people, including myself, wrote about how he influenced us. I am actually going to start with that and will probably share a little bit how we were impacted from our personal experience in the industry by the Modern Portfolio Theory. In my will, basically, is that everyone knows that from investments, just in anything in life, you shouldn't put all the eggs in one basket. You need to diversify. Good common sense, but Markowitz won a Nobel Prize. Steve, why do you think he won? What is so special about his work?
1: Well, it's it's amazing, you know, that that we're we're talking about an individual whose seminal paper was published more than seventy years ago, mm. and we're still talking talking about it. I think that what was so amazing uh, about um, what Markowitz brought to the table with his work was this insight that actually the best portfolio is not actually comprised of the best assets in terms of expected return. It's actually comprised of a trade-off between expected return and the risk contributions of those assets to the portfolio. So expected return and risk where that trade-off is also the assets that have low correlation with other assets. So it's that risk return trade-off that actually creates the best portfolio as opposed to the top performing assets. I think I agree with you because
0: in our lives, uh, in the past, we deal with a lot of institutional clients and some wealth managers as well. One of the most common portfolio construction is balanced portfolio, equities and bonds. And, uh, we look at these frequently, 60, 40, does it make sense? There was a while they didn't make sense because of economics rather than anything else. But the long run, it seems to make sense. I think it's exactly what you said. And they usually, now, if I remember, Steve, uh, at least for me, I use a lot of those so-called optimizer. Mm -hmm. Uh, Basically, uh, we look at the returns of each asset, the correlation, the risk. And try to combine and see what is the optimal portfolio. Do you think actually it is very
1: useful, if at all? Great question. So Mark Woods' initial work in the you know the 1952 paper was actually involved optimization looking at equity securities, many, mm-hmm. many equity securities, with the idea that they're forming essentially the market portfolio. Mm-hmm. And In that context, uh, optimization, as initially proposed by uh, Harry Markowitz, is not used very much, Uh, and there's several reasons for that that we can talk about later. But from an asset allocation perspective, I think mean variance optimization is uh, still foundational for asset allocation purposes, Um, and I remember my first job, maybe it was my second job, um, where... We were responsible for creating asset allocation models, effectively model portfolios used by our our clients. We would get our capital markets assumptions from um, an external, uh, this goes back to sort of 1993, let's say, uh, when my second job started. So we'd get our uh, assumptions for return risk and covariance from, um, I think it was uh, Ibbotson at the time. We'd get a big capital markets book for them we'd add them to our optimization software and we'd use that with um constraints around the individual asset classes to create these different i would call them sort of risk graded asset allocation portfolios for different types of clients or so different objectives from safety to uh growth so I, I think it's still it's still very much uh still very much relevant uh but you have to be careful because there are some uh There are some unintended things that come up when you're using these optimizers. Look at
0: these unintended things shortly. When you talk about risk rating, are they actually risk rating based on portfolio volatility?
1: Markowitz was looking at this efficient frontier. And the efficient frontier represented the optimal trade-off between return and risk for different combinations of investment assets. And so... If you have a certain risk tolerance, Mm -hmm. you could go up to the efficient frontier and find that portfolio mix with expectations around the expected return and do that for whatever your specific risk tolerance uh, was. You would get a different portfolio, portfolio mix. But essentially, every rational investor would like to maximize the return given level of risk. Or you know, given a level of uh, return except the, the minimum level of of volatility that they could get for that that return objective. So those two Understood. went went together. Understood. So if I just rephrase it a little
0: bit. So basically the assumption is, or I use the word assumption, that actually the risk tolerance of a client is reflected by how much volatility in dollars, the value fluctuation in the portfolio, how much that fluctuation a client can withstand. Obviously, for someone cautious or someone who is in the 80s or 90s, they don't want to lose money. It's literally just stable. Where someone very young, they don't mind actually have a huge swing. So that's the starting point. And for that volatility, based on the securities or investment that you find in your big database, there's a mix there And you mix it such that actually there's an optimal return. You can't get higher than the ultimate return based on the optimization, the framework that Markowitz proposed and is now implemented by everyone. But that means that actually, if I actually change that universe of secreted investment, I may be able to do something better?
1: Yeah, potentially. And there's also something I was just thinking about from your, you wrote a a blog recently after Mm -hmm. Harry Markowitz. Passed away, and you were talking about equilibrium models, mm-hmm. which are nice in the sense that it provides a structure for how different kinds of things behave with one another. Mm-hmm. They have some kind of explanatory power. the The other aspect that people look at with these, using kind of uh, mean variance optimization for for clients or these uh, different portfolios with different risk tolerances, different model mm-hmm. portfolios, with mm-hmm. these, is is the time horizon. Because mm-hmm. you're you're putting in expectations and given where we are in a business cycle, um, you know, if someone has a one-year horizon, given that kind of risk, it also implies that the range of returns could be quite wide, potentially outside the bounds of what that investor is willing to accept. Whereas mm-hmm. you talk about if you move out like 10 years or five years or 10 years, you start to see that that range of, of return expectations uh, getting tighter. So... I think this is basically, I'm going to sh-
0: uh, say two things here, share two things. One is, uh, I keep remembering Keynes' famous quote, in the long run, we are all dead. And this is just all the long run return. And we all know, actually, the return, we always say the long-term return or long-term risk premium or certain asset class is X percent. But in our lifetime, we may not see that. <laughs> it may be Y, yes. it may be Z. So it fluctuates. And as you said, the range differs and the time is matter. And this is, I think, is the second part is basically it all depends on how you use those returns. Like you said, you used Iberson and those historical returns. I had an institutional client years ago. They love MarketWise Optimizer. We -hmm. actually have a certain software. I don't know whether you heard of this, Barra? Mm-hmm. It's no longer exists. It's basically bought by anyone. We use Mara to optimize portfolio. And the odd thing is that they run tactical asset allocation using the optimizer. As they are the asset owner, there's a certain limit of what we could do on the Y side. So they keep doing it. And that was just before September 11. So they overweight the hedge fund. they overweight emerging markets, they overweight US. And after September 11, everything is gone. And they are an insurance type. Portfolio. So they run into C fear deficit. They have to switch everything to bonds afterwards. And that I know is pretty trivial, Stephen, but actually that forms such an impression of memory in my mind. It basically says, mm-hmm. you know what? It's very careful. And from a statistical perspective, you and I know a little bit. I, I know you know more than me about statistics, obviously. I know a little bit. But uh that framework, that Markowitz actually. Uh, design is more sensitive to expected return. If there's a large error, what right, you just said, you could throw the whole portfolio. The optimal portfolio one day will look completely different from another day. And, uh, yes. and then you also have hedge funds basically have returns that are not exactly, we call it normal distribution. In other words, it's the, the assumption that we all have. And then you have all kind of silly things that actually end up there. But I can see the simplicity and I can see the programming power of this. So I think this probably is a good time just to move on to the second part of our this our chat. So with that in mind, always, like you said, that is a securities portfolio. And then I think it evolved further in later years into what they call capital asset pricing model.
1: Yeah. Uh, Bill Sharp, actually, Professor Bill Sharp had expanded on um, Markowitz's work. It was kind of if you have a, a level of imagination, you can almost see it because there was a capital market line. You had this efficient frontier and and you're there and you're including all these portfolios. But um, Bill Sharp came up with a capital asset pricing model, which um, had certain uh, had certain assumptions, but it was in theory based on. Beta risk and that all investors had similar like investment horizon and that all the information, again, another assumption that all the information was priced into the securities that mm. they, the, uh, the capital asset pricing model told you what was going to be the most efficient portfolio to hold, which was sort of all securities weighted by their market capitalization.
0: So the two steps there, the first step, obviously, it goes back to equilibrium assumption that we just discussed. Mm. So all the prices reflected and we could probably have another podcast in the new year to talk about efficient hypothesis, but that's one thing. Yeah, completely agree. And the second thing is therefore under that is that if you, my universe is basically all securities, we don't do any selection. I just have the power to buy all securities. Public stocks in the CAPM model, but in theory, bonds as well, and things like we buy everything there. That is your market portfolio, right? And the skills that a trader, a fund manager, an analyst will be picking a stock or certain securities that potentially perform better than the market portfolio. Am I right in saying that?
1: Yeah, that that's right. So capital asset pricing model actually led to becoming a very useful performance measurement tool. And even though theoretically it's hard to continually monitor and and price this, you know, global portfolio of securities market cap uh, weighted, if you make the problem smaller and say, well, what is my benchmark for the US market or the global mm-hmm. market or, you know, the UK market, you can start using it as an interesting portfolio tool because you have a market portfolio that is pretty investable right, for the most part. And then uh, if you are, and then you can see, well, if I I can hold that portfolio, or I can hold something else, Uh, if I hold active managers, potentially the active managers, their skills are delivering a excess return or a higher risk adjuster return, than holding that that market portfolio, which is what you were you were speaking about. And it could be the Mm. Securities they select, either generally, broadly speaking, sort of this Mm. all-weather skill, all-weather alpha, or it could also be... You know that they are tilting towards different types of securities, mm. given where we are in the business cycle. Which kind of references mm. what you were alluding to before with your institutional client, where you know things mm. things change.
0: Let me just try to explain it a little bit in 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 a different way, based on what you just said. I was an engineer, and in the engineering, there are a lot of uh, Greeks. We use a lot of Greeks. I didn't realize that in finance, a lot of Greeks as well. So in terms of parameters i'm not talking about the people <laughs> I'm talking about the the the, the model etc etc so we call beta so beta basically if i let say i put by uh investment in a s&p 500 of foresee all shares index one the beta is one to the market portfolio assuming always to be fair s&p 500 is not the u.s market but pretty much all of it in a, in a way much. but let's say it's beta is one i am an active manager who basically either prime myself with security selection or basically somehow asset allocation if it is a global portfolio etc and they my beta that means my risk my, the return that is driven by market risk the market portfolio can be higher than one or lower than one and lower than one that means i have less taking my returns are driven less by that, taking that risk, but we actually got more uh, potential return from the manager skills. And that's what we call alpha. Uh, so if that's the case, obviously what we look for ideally is that actually, am I right in saying that we should actually look for people with maybe lower beta, but good alpha?
1: Well, it depends. I yeah. I think that's, that's certainly one possibility, mm-hmm. uh, especially if the investor wants to have a portfolio that has less risk, but similar return as the market, that that could work. Um, they could also be a risk-seeking investor. So imagine, for example, that you have this beta or beta, depending on, on which side of the Atlantic you come from. Um, imagine you have this, and then you have a risk-free rate and you draw a line through them, running from sort of a treasury bill return all the way through your FTSE 350 or your S and P 500 or even like an MSCI World if you're talking about a global portfolio. So draw a line through that. In theory, you're, you you could have a higher return than your market portfolio, but still have the same risk adjusted return if you're borrowing. Let's say you were borrowing for for free. We don't do that anymore uh and then you are taking that those borrowed monies and reinvesting in your market portfolio mm-hmm. so the, the alpha could be anything that gives you a higher risk adjusted return given the level of risk that you're uh taking if you're kind of above that above that line so you you could have a portfolio as you said that where you are earning let's say the same return but taking a lot less risk a lower beta you could have a higher return for the same beta, or e- even more if you extend that line up and you're always above the line because you're taking a lot more risk, but your security selection, your stock picking is just just incredible. And well, that, part- that would be reflected in- yeah. The, um,
0: There's in a trend, the- trend now. There's uh, for some of our clients and also some firms that we work with, they actually look at more concentrated portfolio, focused one. And we need to have some well-known names mm-hmm. in the UK, basically I bet big time on certain stocks. Clearly, they and this, is what I think, is where the confusion comes in. Is it, what is beta? What is alpha?
1: <laughs> yes. What do yeah. you think? Well, I think that the longer a term is around, the more it takes on a, a general meaning, which may be different from what was originally intended. Well, it like used that. to be the case that your alphas and, your, and your, your betas went together. So you couldn't have your alpha without your beta and alpha meant your excess return, your higher or lower, after taking the level of risk into account where risk was defined as your your beta. Um, now people talk about this manager generates alpha and a lot of the time, they're just talking about outperformance. And that could actually lead to a whole nother discussion That we probably don't have time for on this podcast just as a very brief example which could be a lead-in for another another uh chance to to speak together but where managers see some kind of outperformance but the outperformance is because they've chosen the wrong beta so they're get they're, they're outperforming because they have a growth portfolio the growthiest names but um they don't know that they have a growth portfolio it's okay if they have a growth portfolio but uh if growth did move out of favor. Um, that's the reason for the over or under performance. Their kind of style, as opposed to their their security selection.
0: Interesting, interesting. So that actually leads nicely to another part of our podcast. What we want to probably touch on probably in, in, in this is the first section is to base on what you just said. It looks like that actually sometimes managers seems to be outperforming or there's a positive alpha, but actually that alpha is not really skills. I'll give you an example. I want to share this example. It's very, quite intriguing. Uh, when I was still working for HSBC years ago, they start picking funds. So they have a fund selection team. There was again around 2000 internet, and they look at a great European equity income fund, perform really nicely. Puppy heard of sharp ratio. Basically, again, it's an equilibrium measure return over risk free rate divided by volatility, and the sharp ratio looks fantastic, etc. So beta was okay because they're measuring against. I forgot what index they're measuring. It's because an income fund is probably a, and there's another p- problem with beta is they select a beta based on the fund measures, Uh. Uh. Benchmark and probably maybe like a investment association, mm-hmm. what fund universe and things like that. We could debate that again, this is probably another podcast. What is the right benchmark and beta? But that's what they do. And then when the guys start looking at the portfolio, they start, uh, spotted something real or why is an European equity income fund, et cetera, putting all the stocks into some of these startup companies? reminds you about uh Whitford a few yeah, years ago. Exactly that was actually 20 years ago. So they do some statistical tool called principal component analysis but you probably. Again, this is a very detailed mathematical way to analyze whether they actually what drive the returns and the, the returns need to be independent, the drivers. Sometimes what we say actually, this is this factor that for example This is because they picked the right stock, et cetera. And that, however, there may be other things behind. Like what you said, just happened to be the right sector rather than the right stock and things like that. So they look into those, what drive the returns. And they start to realize that actually it's explained better by tech stocks. Mm -hmm. So actually, they actually somehow regress that thing or analyze it against the series, against Nasdaq. And actually, you know that that is a huge correlation. That is more, although correlation is not cause-effect, but basically it the, the the sensitivity is there. So they conclude actually it was more because the fund managers was remembers internet, boom. Just go with the trend and buy any European equity company who basically start doing tech. And at the same time, they hold good bonds. So basically there's a bit of income there. And because of that, uh, it's a long story, but basically because of that, they rejected the fund. Uh, uh, It's it's a brave move because it's a popular fund. But on the other hand, it's basically saying you are actually positioning this for clients that are looking for income risk of that level. Yes, the risk is there. The volatility is there. Backward looking, the returns backward looking are good. But there's something hidden there if the internet bubble, which did happen, occurred, the fund went down. And that was the right call. So uh, I think i I'm tell you the long story because I have a passionate belief that whilst we all need to drive with the back mirror, but when we drive, we look forward as well. Yes. So I, I know that some of the things that you do, you, we as I said, we could do a talk a lot in a separate occasion. That's to do with factors, et cetera, forward-looking analysis maybe you could share a little bit on your thoughts on this.
1: Sure. So on one hand, if you're an investor or wealth manager, you're making decisions between your active managers and maybe some passive managers. If you're choosing active managers, you want to choose managers that consistently perform well. Some people, if they're just using a single benchmark, they're not necessarily even capturing what the manager's exposures are, which is what you alluded to. They may have some style or or, or sector. So, um, you know, that that can lead you to looking at um, having several factors when you're looking at your portfolio, you know, small cap and style and momentum and these other things to kind of control for what kind of exposures that the the manager has. And then they want to find managers that have this kind of consistent alpha. And one of the challenges is still – which I see kind of across the board is that the tools have gotten a lot better actually in terms of what is available at the advisor's fingertips, but the statistics haven't gotten a lot better. So if you're looking for alpha, it's a relatively small number compared to your beta of your factors. As an example, if we were talking about uh, equities, maybe if you're lucky, a manager might have one or 2% alpha But the returns could swing from negative 15 to 10% to 20% in a year, good year or bad year, right? So using a traditional framework, it's kind of difficult to find that consistent alpha, also with a shorter track record sometimes, because it's like a little bit like a needle in a haystack because the alpha is so small relative to the beta. So Perala has you know this advanced learning model econometric kind of framework but the ideas are really based on uh long and well well researched topics which you know even go back to your your Famas and and your French which brought up the ideas about you know trying to explain investment performance by broadening CAPM to include a value premium a size premium a quality premium and and so forth and what they left out though in the report but they made mention of it is that um they were not looking trying to capture which would be an important component the time variations in returns across a business cycle mm-hmm. okay because uh that matters a lot whether you're in you know a recession or an expansion the as, the return behavior of your benchmarks and and the investments that you allocate to so um parala also incorporates information in terms of how it looks at alpha in order to also be uh forward looking So as an example, what we do is we include uh, business cycle variables into the framework. And we are trying to understand how much of an asset manager's returns are driven by the risk factors. And then there's also the skill, right? If they are earning a higher return than the risk factors, they have this this skill called alpha. But we break that down further and say some of that alpha is this all-weather skill the security selection skill, it's always there regardless of the business cycle. Mm. And then there's another component that is actually correlated with business cycle variables. And the correlation is actually significant enough that if you understand where you are in the in the environment, um, you can identify the managers that are most skillful for that period. So for example, if you have an equity manager that is good in a low credit risk, high inflationary environment historically... Uh, and you find yourself in that kind of environment again, um, that might be a manager, manager to hold. But by decomposing the alpha into what's idiosyncratic and, and, and what is linked to the business cycle, it gives you an extra lens to understand mm. the drivers of that alpha. Mm. Um, and um, the founders of Parala, this a gentleman named uh, Alan Timmerman and Russ Wormers, they have actually published papers on this uh, Together with uh, a few other co-authors, including um, one of Alan's best students, a guy named Ben Gillen, who okay. was also involved in in the, the writing of the paper, um, but they show that actually that time varying alpha, and they've done this study for the U.S. and and for uh, European funds, it is a very important component. It could be you know sixty to eighty percent of the actual alpha skill is this time varying component. Interesting. So if you're using traditional methods, that kind of goes unpriced. Interesting. Yet and yet it's quite intuitive, right? It's, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, You just have different I think, behavior across the business cycle. Yeah, I have two takeaways from what
0: you just said. I think the first takeaway is I knew that over the last decade, factor investing become very popular. I think everyone now have some factor indices. iShares, Vanguard, all everyone have some factor indices you could actually invest in. And one of the criticism is that some of the analysts or academic try to break alpha, or performance into so many different ba- uh, factors. It become meaningless. So they could make it, they could create a factor. Maybe I'm just making this up. AI, <laughs> it mm. could be a factor. Well, why is it there so there's some good work from uh, research affiliates and other guys who so basically what constitute a good factor. That's that's yeah. probably good reading. But so that's that. But I I prefer actually what you just said because I come to the second takeaway. We go, we've go started our broadcast with Markowitz and everything is equilibrium on that basis to analyze portfolio with risk and return, expected risk, expected return based on long-term historical history. history. Now, we basically say actually things move and there's time wearing element on the returns, especially even for skills. So rather than trying to be, I think one of the challenge was basically the industry love trying to find active managers or managers who have very good performance skills uh, or the alpha, i.e. non-market related skills. We may actually ignore the fact that some of those skills are actually depending on certain context or environment. As you said, some credit managers may be better off in this current environment when rates high economy is kind of going okay, low default but may increase and things like that uh, but at the next cycle it may differ something else. I think that's important in my will because a lot of uh, wealth managers, advisors and even your client on the institutional side depend a lot on the back history to do this analysis so I think that's very interesting for that. Probably spoke a good time just to conclude our discussion. And I, I think we should do probably some other topics in future, Stephen. But okay. if you have one or two things to say to the audience, eh, basically about what we just discussed, sort of takeaways and concluding remarks for them.
1: So one thing, because I guess we started on, on Markowitz, I, I would say that say the awe-inspiring thing Markowitz was this idea about the best portfolio, not actually containing the best assets. And it's actually, by best, I mean highest return, but it's actually this this trade-off. The second thing is optimization still remains a foundational framework for asset allocation, but care must be taken uh, in terms of how it's used with setting risk limits because the weights are quite fragile. I agree with you. And and maybe, maybe the, the, the third one is that there have been advancements in terms of how that's applied that also take into account things like the economic scenario that you're in and probability theory and so forth, mm. and understanding different factor exposures, that you have uh, potentially more control in improving. The reliability of the outcomes of the of the mm. portfolios that you deliver for your for your clients that that's what I would uh, say. My three takeaways are
0: excellent. Thank you for that, Stephen. A lovely talk to you as usual. I think uh, I hope the our listeners learn something. Please let us know if you have any feedback or comments. Stephen is a good friend. We should probably do another podcast next year on some other more. Let me use the word technical. But, more, but important topics on fund research and asset allocation. So until then, everyone, goodbye.